Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. It's so good to see everybody tonight. Beautiful night, amen? I'm not sure if we were able to go indoors. We'd want to go indoors with weather like this. It is just a joy to be able to come and gather together and do what we always do, which is study God's Word on Thursday night. So if you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 31, Isaiah 31, and this is going to mind-boggle you, Israel is facing a pandemic. This chapter is so applicable to where we are as a country, where we are as a church, because just like Israel of old, there are things that only God can handle in our lives. Amen? I've talked with countless people over the last week, and as I've spoken to them, there's been so many concerns of so many varied types. Some people have financial concerns, some people have business concerns, some people have marital concerns, uh, some people have spiritual concerns of varying types. Some people are going through trials and tribulations with maybe something that uh, the Lord wants to deliver them from, but they're not there yet. And it seems to be magnified, every one of those things seems to be magnified during this time that we face this pandemic. Now, not to make light of what we're going through, because what we're going through is difficult, it's hard, but it is not remotely the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. It wouldn't make the top 10, probably wouldn't make the top 100. It might be the worst thing that maybe we've gone through as individuals in our lifetime. But things like what we're facing with COVID-19, the Bible plainly declares that the world has gone through over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And can I tell you something? God himself has always been the answer. He's always been the answer. There's never been another answer ever in the history of the world for things like this. And we see that tonight in the history of the children of Israel. And so before we turn our attention to the word of God, would you join me and let's pray and ask the Lord to speak through us through these nine verses. That's all it is here in chapter 31. Nine verses of of power, I believe, that you can use. You can take home when we leave uh, for, for your use, for the pandemic that you face, that we face together, uh, that God is more than big enough for. Father, we thank you that we can turn our eyes upon you and look full in your wonderful face and the things of this earth do grow strangely dim, strangely dim, Lord, in the light of your glory and your grace. And we pray for those that are suffering tonight. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here is going through an especially hard time, something that 
transpired today, maybe this week or last week, and it's so heavy on their heart that they can hardly think. Lord, would you free their mind from the ravages of the enemy? As they look up on the hills, they would see from whence their help comes. They would not see the enemy. They would not see a pandemic, but they'd see the hand of a mighty God who is able to save. And Lord, that you would speak to us tonight. Lord, we need to hear your voice. We haven't come to gather in a parking lot to hear me speak. We've come for the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and the Great I Am to talk to his children and encourage us. And so through your word, instruct your church in Jesus' name. Amen. We have to recognize the setting in which chapter 9 occurs. And we've been going through this time of these woes. And we now come to this woe, which is really technically the fourth one. But as you look at these things, they're all in light of this nation Assyria. And we're going to stay with them for another couple of chapters. But it's so important to recognize that they were the Nazi Germany of their time. They were the communist regime of Lenin and Stalin of their time. They were the Mao Zedong of their time. They were the Pol Pots of their time. They were the world-conquering, world-ruling, evil empire. And in that sense, they were a pandemic. They were something that was affecting the entire world as we know it in a very, very negative way. They were a godless heathen army that the Bible equates to locusts sweeping down onto a field, eating everything in its path. And so it's not a stretch to see that it is similar to what we face in our day and time. Assyria could not be defeated by the Israelites in Jerusalem. It was a physical impossibility that in battle they stood even their most remote chance of going toe-to-toe with Assyria. You might be saying to yourself tonight, well, it seems a lot like what I'm going through in the workplace. We, we seem to stand no chance of surviving. I don't know if my job's going to make it. Can I tell you that the answer to your dilemma is found in this passage? What you need to know about God and his ability is found in this passage. Because here we have a conquering army. We have tremendous evidence that this conquering army is not going to stop until Judah is destroyed. Why do we know that? Because the northern kingdom, Ephraim, Israel, is already gone. Ten of the twelve tribes have been wiped out. And you might be looking at the stock market, or maybe you're looking at the economy. Perhaps you've been tracking what's going on in the economic world And you're saying, all is lost. We'll never recover from this. Maybe you're a business owner and you're here tonight and you've watched your life savings dwindle and you're thinking the same thing. There's no way that this could possibly work out.
There's pressure in this story against the great king Hezekiah. And a couple of political groups have risen up within the city of Jerusalem. And there was a temptation, and you face the same temptation tonight. I face the same temptation tonight. And that is rather than turning to God, we turn to the world. Rather than doing what God's word says and trusting in the power of the Lord, that we might ourselves turn to Egypt. You see, during this day and time, the next great power lied to the south of Jerusalem by less than 100 miles. It was Egypt of old. Still during this time, a pharaonic kingdom, powerful army, they possessed chariots that were like none other than the rest of the world. They were a powerful foe, but they were also a tremendous potential ally. But they cared nothing for God. There are things in this world that you might look at in the flesh and say that could be a tremendous ally. Maybe for some of you, that's the temptation to go home and drown your sorrows in a bottle. For some of you, it might be your marriage. It's just like this pandemic is, is just too much on our marriage relationship. Maybe it's your business. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your financial situation or your mortgage. Perhaps there's something going on and you're looking at the world. You're saying, if I just had that help from the world, if I could just get them to step into my situation, then I'd have an answer. This passage is speaking to you tonight. And it's speaking a very, very concise message. And it is this, do not trust the world. Verse 1, woe to those who go down to Egypt. And again, I remind you, you can simply circle every time you see Egypt in your Bible. And though it may be a reference to an ancient kingdom, and certainly was in most cases, it is also a, a typology of the world. This was the Jewish people's constant temptation to turn towards the world and away from God. Notice what it says, woe, beware, mind-bogglingly dangerous is the thing you're considering. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. Woe to those who turn to the world for help and rely on horses or the Constitution or politicians or stock portfolios or business acumen, your intellect, your friends, your parents. Woe to you who trust in, rely on, put your hope in anything that this world has to offer. 
Now, it's not saying that there is total evil in all of those things. There is not. Many of those things are actually good. But there will come a point in time in everyone's life when you will learn to acknowledge that you can trust in absolutely nothing consistently save the Lord God of hosts. Your friends are going to fail you. Your parents are going to fail you. Your country is going to fail you. The Constitution doesn't have an answer for everything. The judicial system is going to fail you. The world cannot do what God can do. And whenever we attempt to replace God with something, someone, or some system of the world, we set ourselves up to say, whoa. Who trusts in chariots? Because they are many. And in horsemen, because they're very strong. This is a picture that the Bible paints as the arm of flesh. It's everything that man can do in a given situation. It says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt, who rely on horses, who trust in chariots, and in horsemen, because they are very strong. And here's the truth. They were very strong. Very powerful. As far as a human being is concerned, there were very few places that you could turn that wouldn't be a better choice intellectually, rationally, logically. But notice how this verse ends, long verse, verse 1, but, whenever you see but, always circle it, it's the same as therefore, it's drawing your attention to something that is a contrast. You should be looking at it, why is that there? But, who do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. What an incredible contrast. You see, here's the truth. The Lord should always be our first choice. Not where we go when things get bad. And here in the life of the children of Israel, we have this picture as Isaiah is pronouncing this woe on them. As they're seeking help, they're seeking help from the world and they're not even inquiring of God. Not only not asking God, they're not even talking to God about the situation. It has gotten so bad that they have purely relied upon the help that the world might be able to give. And sadly, for some strange reason, I think we're still prone to this fallacy. I know I am. Make a confession to you. I have a pretty fair amount of intellect. I would like to think I'm a little above average in the, the, the gift of logic and reasoning, especially if it's linear, if it just has point A to point B and I need to get there, I can usually figure out a way. The problem is the fact that I can do that is actually part of the problem. Because I look at it and I go, you know what, I can figure that out. I can get this done myself. If I get the right kind of help from the world, eh, I wouldn't admit it to you, but maybe I can do without God. I can just get it done by me. And so church, this passage applies to us tonight. It's a place that we need to go and we need to hear what's being said. 
And so Isaiah pronounces this woe, and he says, don't do it. This is such a powerful lesson for us. This is the lesson that David the psalmist knew. David in Psalm 118 in verses 8 and 9 says this. He says, it is better for us to put our trust in the Lord than our confidence in man. It's better to trust in the Lord than the confidence of our princes. Now, why would I bring that up to you tonight? Because I have listened to argument after argument after argument with believers, well-intentioned people who love the Lord that keep naming the wrong source of help. They're appealing to the First Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment and our Congress and our Senator and our Governor and our Mayor and, 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 and for the cure to a problem that only God can solve. The same exact problem that Isaiah faced with the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And he says, be careful, because this is not going to work out for you if you don't turn to the Lord. Now that's not saying that any of those people, any of those systems I just named are inherently evil or wrong. But if you are looking to the United States government tonight to bail us out of a pandemic, you're going to be sorely mistaken. Whenever the virus is finally conquered, it will be because the hand of the Lord gave a solution to somebody and that person was able to make that vaccine. That's how it's going to get solved. And, and I don't doubt right now that maybe even the Lord is forestalling the solution to this problem so that we, the church, will cry out again to the Lord. Sometimes I wonder if this isn't actually a chastening from God. The church has become complacent. And, and I, I pick at no one sitting here tonight. I really make no accusation against anyone. I'm simply saying, when we start actually making, trying to make the case, I might add, that the church is being persecuted because we have to do this instead of be in that building, there's something seriously amiss with our walk with the Lord. Because the fact that we get to gather together at all, if we had to do this one or two at a time underneath a rock or a tree, the God who reigns in heaven is still worthy of our praise. Amen? Amen? Don't miss that. Because this is the problem that Israel faced. This is what Judah was facing. We have to learn to trust the Lord. Verse 2. And yet he also is wise and will bring disaster. Now, I want you to see something. If you have a New King James translation, a New American Standard, an ESV, you're going to notice the capitalized he there. Why? Because the he is God that's going to bring disaster. It's a reference to the Lord. And will not call back his words. Again, capitalized. Why? Because God is going to bring disaster so that the children of Israel, the remnant, Judah, learns to, again to trust in the Lord. Sometimes God takes things away from his kids 
so that we learn to appreciate the things we have. But we'll rise again against. Now, I love this. Because he doesn't leave them in that state of destruction. He doesn't leave them in that state of chastising. The Lord does indeed chasten those whom he loves, but he doesn't leave us in chastening. But will arise against the house of the evildoers. So whoever the evildoers are, whether it's Assyria or whether it's COVID-19, whether it's some plot or ploy that's been set against us, and against the help of those who work iniquity. In other words, the plans of the evildoers will not stand against the Lord. Amen? Get this. Hear the word of the Lord. Because God's character has not changed. His ear is still inclined to the cries of his children. He still loves us desperately, longs for us. He is jealous for us, the Bible says. And now the Egyptians are men <laughs> and not God. Underline that one. The Egyptians are just men. They're not God. Everything in this world that you could trust in, they are men, the fabrication of men, the creation of men. They are not God. So don't trust in things that are not God. Trust in God himself. Their horses, their flesh, and not spirit. And when the Lord stretches out his hand, both he who helps will fail. And he who is helped will fall down. They'll all perish together. In other words, when God is good and ready to solve this dilemma, no matter who or what is standing against him, it's over. It's done. I was talking with my brother Jeff just a couple of days ago, and we were having a, a discussion. Now imagine that you're alive during the Second World War, and you're in Nazi Germany, and you're Jewish. It didn't look like there was any hope that the Jewish people were going to survive. And yet they did. And guess what happened to those that were against the children of Israel? They're the ones that didn't exist any longer. It was Goering, Goebbels, tried the Nuremberg trials. Hitler took his own life, we think. God is still very attentive to his children. He knows where you are tonight. He knows where I am tonight. He knows where his kids are tonight. He's lost sight of not one of us. And even in the darkest hour, he's still got a plan. And no weapon fashioned against him will prosper, says the Lord. Don't miss those promises. Don't trust in the arm of flesh that is Egypt to the world. No matter what it may look like, the greater help is always the spirit of the living God alive in the life of the believer in this world, through the church. That is always the winning side. Even in death, 
Why do you think the Apostle Paul spoke the things he spoke? He says, in life or in death, I don't care which. In rich or poor, I don't care which. All I know is that all that I am is because of the Lord. And I know it's all going to work out in the end. Amen? Verse 4, for thus says the Lord, as he has spoken to me. Now, I love this. Now, I have to admit, I am kind of, as I've gotten older, I can't watch some of the National Geographic specials where the one lame animal gets picked off out of the herd anymore. I just can't do it. Okay? I, I, call me whatever name you want to call me. I don't care. But the one weak wildebeest that gets picked, I, I just can't handle it. It's like I have, I have sorrow for the wildebeest for a week. But you know, if you're about to be attacked, if you want somebody to come to your defense, you want a lion. You don't want a wildebeest. Wildebeest is going to run away. Zebras are going to run. If you want something to do some fighting for you, you want a lion. Notice how the Lord is compared. For thus the Lord has spoken to me as a lion roars and a young lion is over its prey. Even when a multitude of shepherds is summoned against him, yet he will not be afraid of their voice, nor will be disturbed by his noise. Now this is how the Lord sees the armies of the world. The armies of the world are like a couple of shepherds going out into a field and there is a lion crouched on top of his downed prey and the shepherds are going, bad lion, bad lion, bad lion. And the lion looks up like, do you guys seriously think I'm going to listen to that? Two steps closer and I'm going to eat you too. This is the picture here. Now think about it. Picture the Lord, the lion... The Assyrians, the prey on the ground that the lion has now pounced on, is about to consume. And the shepherds is all the people who don't trust the Lord going, get away from it. The Lord's going, no, I got this. I've got this. And so the Lord of hosts will come down to fight for Mount Zion and for its hill. Do you see it? The Lord's saying, you don't have anything to fear. Those shouting Assyrians that are over there on Mount Scopus, that are on the Mount of Olives, that are lining the Brook Kidron, that have come down into the Hinnom Valley, they're, they're there at the confluence, the, the area called Jehoshaphat. They're in the hills of Samaria. They are nothing. The Lord sees it and says, I'm going to come down and I will personally free Zion. That's our God, family. That's how God sees pandemics. That's how God sees the things that come against you and come against me. The great King Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verses 7 and 8 gives this counsel during this time. This is the history of this very event. Be strong and courageous, King Hezekiah finally says. As they're imprisoned in the city, as they're down to just Judah and Benjamin, 
Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria. This is Hezekiah's word to the remnant of Israel, all that's left. Now picture you're completely surrounded. And King Hezekiah is saying, look, I so trust the Lord. Pay no attention to what you see. God's going to take care of us. Nor before all the multitude that's with him, for there are more with us than with him. Would you underline that, please? And we'll get to that at the end of our time tonight. How could King Hezekiah say that? How could he possibly think that is true? For with him is the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. You see, from a godly position, from a God-honoring position, from a God-first position, King Hezekiah is saying, that army's nothing. Looks like something. Physically actually is something. But if God be for us, say it, church. Who can be against us, amen? Do you believe that tonight? That was an old veggie tale. God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than Godzilla and the monsters on TV, Amen. He's also bigger than the Assyrians, and he's bigger than the pandemic. Amen? Do you believe that? Because it's true. In the midst of all of this, there's a very interesting, and it's verse, verse 5 that I've always looked at. It. It's almost like it doesn't belong here until you realize that the Lord is doing what the Lord always does. And he, he throws things in Scripture that are not for the moment, they're for later. And it's so, just in case someone would think that the Lord doesn't have it under control, or he doesn't have it in view, or he can't do it today, he could do it then, but why should we trust him now? Like birds flying about, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending, he will also deliver it, and passing over, he would preserve it. Now, in the moment, it kind of is just a picture of the Lord at work over Jerusalem, but is also speaking forward. As I've told you before, and I'll tell you again, remind you again, oftentimes there are dual fulfillments in prophecy. There was something for the moment. In this case, the Lord was over Jerusalem. He could see what was going on. He defended. But this is so very specific that I think it was actually pointing forward to a time that wasn't that long ago. Just about 100 years ago. And this principle of God speaking through the prophets of old is actually taught to us in 1 Peter chapter 1. In verses 10 through 12, and it says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. Who prophesied of the grace that would come to you? In other words, the prophet Isaiah, seeing Messiah, was actually understanding the grace of God. He didn't fully get it, but he was speaking of the grace that would come to us. As the Lord died on Calvary's cross, shed his blood, the plan of salvation completed, that which Abraham hoped for and believed in, was filled with faith for, Abraham believed by faith, and it was accounted unto him to righteousness. Amen? 
Notice what it says, verse 11. Searching what, or what manner of time, the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. In other words, when the prophet Isaiah wrote Isaiah 52 and 53, which we will get to, when he authored chapter 7, when, when he spoke of the fall of Satan in chapter 14, when he spoke these things that would not be fully visible until later, the prophets of old actually were being instructed by God that things that would happen in the future would be told to them so that you could know, you could look at it and go, you know what? They knew that a long time ago. And that information didn't come because they were you know, really good at computer diagnostics. Verse 12 says, To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministers. Get this. The ministers of which now the things that have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven the things which angels desire to look on. So this little verse 5 that's set here, and I want to look at it in, in some detail, I believe is a foregleam. It's looking forward. Many times in the New Testament, we actually get an exposition on something that was said in the Old Testament. Such is true with Peter. Such is true with Paul. Peter in Acts chapter 1 and verse 20 uh, picks up on, on actually what Psalm 109 says, and it's speaking about the replacement of Judas. And so there's all kinds of little things like that that are in there. And, and I believe that the Lord leaves these things for us so that when we find him, we go, hmm, what does that mean? So back to verse 5. Lest you think it's just coincidence, because they didn't have planes, they didn't have balloons, they didn't have any way to hover over the city. The Assyrians weren't doing that. The people trapped from Judah in Jerusalem weren't doing that. But in 1917, when the Ottoman Turks were holding the city of Jerusalem, um, General Lord Allenby was surrounding the city and about to take the city of Jerusalem. He had positioned his artillery all around the city of Jerusalem, was about to shell the old city. And he realized that if he did, if he did that, he was going to be destroying almost every major Christian site that the world held dear. And so rather than do that, he sent a whole group of biplanes over the city of Jerusalem. They flew over it for several hours. And in flying over it for several hours, something very strange happened, which did not happen during the time that the Assyrians had laid siege to it. And I believe the Lord gave Isaiah a little glimpse. Because as Allenby was getting ready to launch an artillery barrage to drive the Turks out of the old city, and as he sent these planes over, they saw the planes, and guess what they did? They abandoned the city of Jerusalem. They figured they were about to be bombed. Not one bomb was dropped. Not one shell was fired. The Ottoman Turks were actually defeated simply by a bunch of planes flying over the city of Jerusalem. They vacated the city. And so what does it say? Like birds. Like birds. Notice that that's what we call a simile or a similitude. Something that is like, like birds flying about. Not birds flying about, but like birds flying about. 
So will the Lord defend Jerusalem. Defending, he will deliver it. Notice it doesn't say offending. It doesn't say that there's going to be offense. It doesn't say he's going to battle for it. There's a little tiny thing stuck here in verse 5. And so rather than the city being bombarded, the Turkish garrison leader actually vacated the city, left it with all of his armaments inside the city, and Lord Allenby took the city. Shortly after that, the Balfour Mandate the establishment of Transjordan and what would be what the Jewish people would eventually be able to inherit in 1948 when they came back, or at least a part of it. The bottom line here God's going to defend you. Turn back to God. God Himself will defend you. Return to Him, verse 6 says, against whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. For in that day, verse 7, every man shall throw away his idols of silver, his idols of gold, his sin, which your own hands have made for yourselves. In other words, when you return to the Lord and you get rid of the things that you're not supposed to have, that's when the Lord steps in. That's when the Lord defends us. That's when the Lord shows up, when we actually rest and trust in him. That's when the Lord shows up. Verse 8 speaks of the reformation of the people, and so they've done this. They've returned to the Lord. They've thrown away their idols. They're not going to go to Egypt. Some of them escaped, and a few of them went. They all died. That's the story that we read. Verse 8, and then Assyria shall fall by a sword, not of man. Realize what that's saying? Doesn't say, you know, some other army is going to come from Egypt. See, the Assyrians have already taken the Babylonians. The Babylonians defeated by the Medes and the Persians. This is, this is the ruling army. But they're going to fall. But not by a sword of man. And a sword of mankind shall not devour him. But he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be forced into labor. He shall cross over to his stronghold for fear, and his princes shall be afraid of the banner. What's the banner that's over the people? The banner over the people, the banner of the Lord, is love. That, that Jerusalem, the city of peace, would once again be ruled by the prince of peace. And so again, it's ultimately looking all the way forward into the time that Messiah would reign. But it says the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. So in our remaining 10 minutes or so, what happened? Well, oddly enough, we're going to find a little more information here in Isaiah. But if you turn, if you can, if you can see, if you've got your cell phone and you can turn your light on, 2 Kings chapter 19, you can look at it when you get home. I'll read it to you, verses 35 and 37. We read what happened. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord, that's one angel, went out and smote the camp of the Assyrians, 185,000 of them. One angel of the Lord. Very often, 
though not exclusively, most of the time when you see the angel of the Lord as opposed to an angel or a angel of the Lord, likely that's a Christophany if it's in the Old Testament. It's Jesus showed up. But it is possible that it's just an angel or an angelic appearance. But one angel of the Lord went out and smote the camp of the Assyrians, 185,000 of them. And when the people of Jerusalem arose early in the morning, behold, they looked out and there were all dead corpses. Now, it's pretty gruesome, I admit. And Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed. When he returned, he dwelt in Nineveh. That's Mosul, Iraq today. Fabulous wealth of antiquities there. And we'll see more of this next time. And it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his God, that Adramalek and Sherezer, his sons, smote him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Armenia, which is just north uh, in modern-day Turkey, and Esherhaddon, his son, reigned in his stead. You realize what that says? It fulfills exactly what Isaiah said would happen. You aren't going to have to fight this battle. The Lord himself is going to do it. There's not even going to be a human battle. And it says that one angel, in essence, because it speaks in verse 8 that there will be a sword, but not a sword of man, not a sword of mankind is going to wipe out the Assyrians. It would be angelic, and we're told it's an angel in 2 Kings 19. Prophecy fulfilled. The entire Assyrian army wiped out in a single night so that the people of Israel got up in the morning and went, Hey, Bob, they look kind of dead to me. (laughs) You know? Can you imagine? You go to bed thinking you're going to be dead in the morning, you get up and they're all dead. That's how quickly things can turn in the Lord's economy. Amen? And so there's some truths that we need to understand about these angelic beings. And whether this was, which I believe it was, an appearance of the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament, a Christophany, he's still acting in the capacity of an angel. He's the angel of the Lord, the singular one. Angels are a special class of creation. They were created before we were created. They're spiritual beings. And they do have capacity to take on human form. We see that often in the Old Testament. Abraham talked to the angel of the Lord, amen? Gideon talked to the angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord appeared to Samson, and so on and so on. In the New Testament, we find Peter delivered by an angel of the Lord. We see Paul speaking to an angel of the Lord. At one time, even Satan himself was the anointed cherub who covers They're in Ezekiel 28. So we know how powerful Satan was. He was a cherubim. He was one of the cherub. You see, when we think about that, we think about what we know about angels, and we think about our problems, how tough do you think it would be for the Lord to step into our time and deal with some of the things that are going on in your life angelically. 
miraculously. If he could take care of the whole Assyrian army in one night with one angel, how big do you think most problems are to God? They're fairly insignificant, amen? I think that's a a pretty major victory. To put that into perspective for you, if it was 185,000, legitimately 185,000, that's about one-third of the total battlefield casualties that the U.S. experienced during the whole of the Second World War in five years. That's a pretty good success rate with one guy with a sword, don't you think? When that sword is in the hand of the Lord, it's mighty unto the tearing down of the stronghold of the enemy, amen? That's why Paul could say those things to the authors of Ephesians 6. He says, you don't have anything to fear. God's got this. And honestly, church, God has got this for us tonight as well. He's not short. In fact, Psalm 91, I love Psalm 91. He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all of your ways, to bear you up, lest you should even dash your foot on a stone. God's got it. Hebrews begins, chapter 1 begins in verse 14. Are not they all ministering spirits who've been sent to minister to those who are the heirs of salvation? Guess what you are as a believer? You have angels watching over you. The Bible teaches that very clearly. Now before any of you get too far along in your theology... I can't tell you the name of your angel, so don't call me and go, what's my angel's name? I don't know. Do I have two or do I have, I think I need one more. We all do. I think all boys are born with at least a dozen angels initially. They wouldn't make it to two without them. But when Satan fell, described there in Isaiah 14, It ties into Revelation 12 when Satan falls there in the book of Revelation. He draws with him one-third of the host of heaven, the stars of heaven. And again, it's it's a typology of the angels of heaven. And so here's a little simple math for you. If you have one third, how many thirds are left? Two, amen? So if Satan got one third, Jesus got to keep two thirds. So at the very least... Satan's demons are outnumbered two to one. At the very least. And I happen to think that it's not even that close. God's got this. God's got this. I think there are all kinds of phenomena that we see in the world that we we don't know exactly how it happened. How did your car stop before it went off that cliff? How was it that you got home and you, you look and there's a bald spot and you, you could have crashed and killed everyone in your car, but somehow you managed to pull into the driveway and then you saw the tire go. <laughs> How many times when doctors have done their best and it looks grim? How many times was that incurable cancer no big deal? Because the Lord sent help. How many times was that mind that looked irretrievably broken that somehow not only functions, but highly functions? How many times was that God intervening in a life? 
I think it's frequently and often. God's got this. He does. How many things do we see in our world that we attribute to some type of psychic phenomena? It's just an angel kind of diddling around for the day doing something. God's got this. The Bible says in Psalm 34 that the angel of the Lord encamps about the righteous. Anybody excited about that? The angel of the Lord encamps about the righteous. If you're in Christ, you're righteous because he is righteous in you. The angel of the Lord encamps. The angel of the Lord has set up camp around you. Around me, around us. That the angel of the Lord's ear, Psalm 34, goes on to say, open to their cry. God's not deaf. He's not blind. He has plenty enough power for everything that comes against us. We're not to worship angels. Actually, John attempted to do that in Revelation 19. He wanted to bow down and worship the angel, which was the angel of the Lord, which was speaking to, giving him the vision, and the angel, which would have been Jesus at that time. He said, see that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant. I'm just here to help. God's got this. Throughout Scripture, we see all these mighty angels, Michael and Gabriel. Michael, the strong prince, the warrior angel. We see him in Daniel, if you were with us in the study of Daniel, in Daniel 10. Gabriel seems to be in charge of announcements from heaven when God wants to say something special. The birth of John the Baptist. The announcement of Jesus' birth to give Daniel a word of encouragement. That literally there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels, cherubim and seraphim, that we already saw back in chapter 6, that surround the throne of God just crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God has plenty of help for our battles. You believe that tonight, church? God has plenty of help for our battles. He's not short-handed. And I would leave you with this analogy. Think on this for a second. When Jesus was in the garden, you remember this story? He's about to be arrested. Peter whoosh, pulls out his sword. The high priest servant Malchus comes by. Jesus is standing there and, and Peter lops off his ear. Jesus picks up the ear, puts the ear back on. Do you remember what he said to Peter? He said, Peter, 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 good grief. Now, it doesn't say good grief in your Bible. But for the purpose of illustration, oh, Peter, good grief. Don't you realize that at any moment, if I wanted to, I could call 10,000 angels 
to deliver me out of this Roman cohort's hands. Pilate sends a hundred. Jesus says, I could call hundreds of thousands of angels if I wanted to. But I don't even need them. I'm more than enough by myself for this, Peter. Put your sword away. Let me take care of this. Hashtag God's got this, amen? God's got it. You know, we think of things coming on the timeline of prophecies. Like, man, how could Israel stand against Russia and Iran if they got together and they came? You know, that's not going to happen. Hashtag God's got this. It's going to work out exactly as the Bible says it's going to work out. God's got it. We're going to wake up one morning and there's going to be a, there's going to be a vaccine for COVID. There's going to be a therapy. The question is, what are we going to do with the time that we have left? Because God's got this. He's kept us. He's left us here for a reason and a purpose. And just like God warned these Jewish kings, warned Hezekiah, those that were inside of the city of Jerusalem, the remnant of Judah, just like he warned Solomon in 1 Kings 10, don't do it. Don't trust the world. Don't put your hope and trust in the world. Trust in the Lord your God with all of your, everything that you have, all of your might, all of your strength. Don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge God in everything. And he'll guide and direct your path. He's your deliverer. You don't need political negotiations. You don't need the words of the Egyptians to speak to the Assyrians. And just like that, the church faces many enemies today. We don't need the world's answers. We need the Lord's answers. Our first response has to be examine our own hearts and ask ourselves, are we trusting in the Lord? Or are we doing what Egypt would have done? And that's just simply bring horses and chariots and manpower. We need to trust in the Lord. Back when I first got into ministry, one of our pastors at Vista had a little sign on his desk and it says, faith is living without scheming. Still true today. It's still true. We don't need to make plans for God. We need to make a place for God. We need to trust in the Lord and he will deliver us. Amen? Would you stand and we'll close in prayer. If you're here tonight or if you're watching online and you don't know the King, you don't know the Lord, you've never invited Christ into your life, the Bible says if you'll believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. And you're, you're saying, well, Pastor Jeff, what does that actually mean? It means that God sent his own son into this world that the world through him might be saved. That he took your sin on his own life. And he took that sin to Calvary's cross and he, was die- he died. 
He was killed. He was murdered because of the weight of your sin. And he's offering as an exchange for your sin eternal life. If you will relinquish your life to him and say, Jesus, come into my life and be my Lord, be my Savior, forgive my sin, he will do that and he will exchange your unrighteousness for his righteousness and he'll put the Holy Spirit in you so that you can begin a walk with the Lord. Maybe someone tonight needs to pray that prayer. Just say, dear Jesus, come into my life, be my Savior and my Lord. I want to walk with you. Pray that prayer before you leave. For the rest of us that know him, we need to recommit our lives to his lordship, to him ruling and reigning in our lives. Father, we thank you. Lord, what an incredible picture that we have here in this chapter, just these nine verses speak into our lives today, the Assyrian that we face. Lord, for some of us, it is this virus. For some of us, our finances. For some of us, it's politics. For some of us, it's some legal problem. For some of us tonight, it is our marriage. For some of us, Lord, it's school. For some of us, it's some drug or alcohol or some relationship. But for all of us, there's only one answer. For all of us, Lord. And we who know you cry out and we call you Lord, Master, Ruler, Sovereign, King over our lives. And we relinquish control to you. And we ask that you would take us, Lord, and you you move us and you shake us. You cause your word and your will and your way to be done in our lives. We pray for that, Lord, tonight. And for our nation, which is so deeply divided, God of heaven. God of heaven, we need you to fall afresh upon this planet, upon the church, that the church would stop bickering, stop complaining, stop fighting within itself, and share the good news that Jesus Christ, you, King Jesus, are the only way, the only truth, the only life. And no one comes to the Father but by you. And so, Lord, we give you our lives afresh and anew. Work in us as your church. Encourage us, Lord. We we put that on our hearts and minds this week. Hashtag, you've got this. God's got this. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. And all God's people said. Thanks for listening. And we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.